0: Calling all ninjas. Calling all ninjas. It's time for Lime Ninja Radio.
1: Today, on Lime Ninja Radio.
0: Join us every Thursday on iTunes for the latest episode of Lime Ninja Radio. Hello, I'm your show producer and the brains behind Lime Ninja Radio, Aurora, and this is episode number 254 with your host and official nitric oxide expert, an expert if you get asked to talk about it, right? One would think so. I think so too. McKay Rippy.
1: And that's why you stole the intro from That me.
0: is why I stole the intro.
1: Don't be fooled, I am here live <laughs> in the studio.
0: And today we're going to be learning three things.
1: Yes, what I'm going to be presenting is a talk I gave in Denver about nitric oxide and toxicity and how the toxicity damage our ability to produce nitric oxide, which eventually leads to heart attacks and death. Now, we all know that Lyme disease has a component where it can damage your heart, Lyme carditis, right? And I believe this is the pathway through which it's doing that damage. But the other thing that's happening, and I'll talk about in this talk, is there's significant DNA damage going on as well. And nitric oxide can also damage mitochondria. It's at the centerpiece of the inflammation that happens with Lyme disease, and particularly something called NOS uncoupling. So NOS is simply N-O-S, nitric oxide synthase, and there are various synthases located in different parts of the body. When this enzyme becomes uncoupled, it doesn't do its job, or maybe people would say it does its secondary job then it starts creating much, 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 can I say much, much, a few more times? A
0: few more times, I think.
1: Inflammation. Just, it goes off the rails. And our sickest patients out there definitely have NOS uncoupling going on. Now, there's genetic factors that can play into NOS uncoupling as well, but we won't dive too deep into that. So That's why I wanted to bring this to you. It really is geeky. It's really technical. It's really awesome. If you grasp even a little bit, you'll begin to understand why one of the things you need to do to heal is to get your nitric oxide synthases back on track. And there are a couple strategies. There are quite a few strategies to do that. The talk was too long, so I didn't go into all the different supplements that are formulated for this. But if you have any questions, send us an email or just Google nitric oxide supplements out there. There are really some good ones. Uh, Berkeley Life in particular is an easy way to get started. The Human N and Neo40 is also a good one. And then if you do have a genetic nutrition practitioner who works with Bob Miller and his system, we have three specialty supplements designed just for that system. All right. That was a long introduction, wasn't it? Yes. For those listening, still listening, and I haven't scared you (laughs) off. (laughs) Aurora and I want to give a big shout out to you longtime Lime Ninjas. You're the reason we have more than half a million downloads. Aurora and I really appreciate you tuning in. And we'd also like to welcome all the new listeners out there. Welcome to Lime Ninja Radio. You are now officially a Lime Ninja.
0: And as you know, Lyme disease is an international problem. Each week we have listeners join you from all over the world. And this past week we've had listeners tune in from Berlin, Germany to Burwood, Australia. That's so cool. I thought so too.
1: And we're not going to do an intro about me. You kind of know who I am. I'm an acupuncturist. I work with Bob Miller on his research staff. I'm becoming an expert in nitric oxide.
0: You say a little bit more about yourself a little in the bit talk more. as well.
1: Oh good. Do I yeah. introduce myself there? Yeah, so you if you do. want to know more about me, listen to the talk. <laughs> it's in the first few minutes. So you won't be scared off yet. No, really. It's good. I go slowly. I explain it all. There's also a YouTube video of this that has the slides as well. And we'll put that in the show notes. So if you're listening in the car, and you want to say, you know what? I need to see this again with the slides. We'll have that on LimeNinjaRadio.com. And I think that's enough. So without let's get ado. without further ado and any other clichés, let's get started with my nitric oxide presentation. Hello, this is a presentation I gave in Denver, Bob Miller's Toxicity Conference in September 2019. For those of you who don't know me yet, my name is McKay Rippey. My training is as a five element acupuncturist. I've been in practice for 30 years and live on a small farm in central New York. My journey down the nitric oxide rabbit hole began two and a half years ago when I had a reactivation of Lyme disease, and that left me unable to lift my right arm for three months. It was a miserable experience. However, I am grateful that gave me a lot of time to really dig into the power, purpose, and pathology of nitric oxide. But before we jump in, I need you to do one thing for me, okay? And that is don't drink the Kool-Aid. So what do I mean by that? I want this presentation to be like a wine tasting, except you're going to be sampling information instead of wine. I want you to sniff what I'm teaching, swirl it around in the glass, hold it up to the light, take a sip, You know, do that funny thing that wine tasters do with their cheeks and then spit it out. If what I'm teaching is good, and I believe this information is very, very good, you'll want more. You will understand your most difficult patients in a whole new way, and you will have new tools in your clinical toolbox to help them. And that reminds me, conflicts of interest are no joke. I make a small bit of money on the supplements I recommend. And that's that. So, are you ready to jump in? Awesome. Let's go. So, toxins create all kinds of health problems, but we're going to focus on cardiovascular disease. Why? Because it's a huge problem and you're seeing the effects of it in your office every day. According to the American Heart Association, every 40 seconds an American will have a heart attack. As of 2016, 28.2 million US adults were diagnosed with heart disease. The Heart and Toxins is a really depressing 668 page read. It thoroughly examines many sources of toxicity and how those toxins affect the heart. This truly is the age of chemistry and this age has a dark side. We could spend the rest of this weekend going over the toxins in this book, but I've chosen to focus on one, and that is bisphenol A or BPA. A 2003 CDC study showed that 93% of people had BPA in their urine. And that makes me wonder about the other 7% if they don't have some sort of detox variant. In addition to its well-known endocrine disrupting effects, The CDC links BPA to all kinds of health issues. And you can see that it's found in lots of everyday items. It's no wonder we all have BPA in our systems. This 2014 study from the Journal of the Federation of American Societies for Experimental Biology showed that BPA caused hypertension. Here are some of the highlights from the study. There's higher urinary BPA concentrations are associated with arterial hypertension in humans, and they wanted to know why that happened, so they designed a study. They put BPA in the drinking water of eight-week-old mice for 30 days. The mice developed a dosage-dependent high blood pressure, and that's a strong indication that there is a cause-and-effect relationship. The reason they developed hypertension in the mice is they had a 1.7-fold increase in arterial angiotensin II, a 2.5-fold increase in calcium-calmodulin-dependent protein kinase 2 alpha, and a 8.7-fold increase in endothelial nitric oxide synthase. Now that's huge. BPA increases the expression of endothelial nitric oxide synthase, or ENOS. The reason why that's huge is, to, is up till recently, ENOS was believed to be expressed at a fairly constant physiological level and didn't vary much. We now know that just isn't true. They also found significant ENOS dependent superoxide and peroxynitrite accumulation. So that's also huge. And you might get tired of me saying huge during this presentation, but it's immensely important. So what that's showing is that the nitric oxide three, the enos, the endothelial nitric oxide is being overexpressed and that it is being uncoupled. And instead of producing nitric oxide is producing the oxidant superoxide and peroxynitrite. So are any light bulbs starting to go off for you like they did for me when I first read about this paper? Yes, no, it's okay if they aren't. We're going to unpack the details of what is happening in the study, and you'll see later that not only does blood pressure rise because of a lack of nitric oxide, but the stage is also set for significant inflammation and even tissue destruction by activation of the innate immune system. So the study concludes... Our data suggests that BPA regulates blood pressure by inducing angiotensin-2 and calmodulin kinase-2-alpha uncoupling of endothelial nitric oxide. Clearly BPA is a huge problem, but I don't wanna get stuck on BPA. Instead of focusing solely on the toxin itself, we're gonna focus on something which I think is far more important and far more universal we're going to focus on how nitric oxide and its synthesis get disrupted. And I believe nitric oxide is disrupted in many of your sickest patients. There's no way to cover everything nitric oxide does in 90 minutes and do it any kind of justice. So this, During this presentation, we're just going to be focusing on the downstream cardiovascular damage from nitric oxide dysregulation, but we could just easily talk about Alzheimer's or Lyme disease or autism, autoimmunity, ALS, so forth and so on, insomnia, depression, the list literally is endless. Nitric oxide is involved in a vast variety of physiological symptoms. So this is a 2007 study from Physiological Reviews. It's a Fabulous paper on nitric oxide, superoxide, and peroxynitrate. It's open access. I highly recommend that you track this one down. So the name superoxide implies that superoxide should be a powerful oxidant. Superoxide, however, more generally behaves as a mild reductant under physiological conditions rather than a superoxidizing agent. This is because superoxide exists naturally as a small anion which is more likely to surrender its electron than to accept a second electron from another biological molecule. However, superoxide is a strong oxidant when it's mated to a protein. That way it will directly oxidize positively charged chemical moieties such as iron sulfur centers. And I'm going to be digging into this more because I think this is super significant. I want to know exactly what proteins are getting charged up by superoxide and who they're chasing after. So the destruction of iron sulfur centers in mitochondria has been well described in superoxide dismutase knockout mice. So to review, superoxide when it's paired with a protein has a particular appetite for mitochondria, This is why superoxide dismutase and genetic variants in the production of that enzyme are such a big deal. Although nitric oxide is often described as a highly toxic and reactive molecule, it's not. In fact, inhaling low concentrations of gaseous nitric oxide is approved by the FDA for treatment of persistent pulmonary hypertension in newborns. In addition, nitric oxide can be produced for 80 years by neurons in the human brain without overt toxicity. Paradoxically, the production of the same molecule can become highly damaging to the same neurons within a few minutes during pathological challenges such as a stroke and infection. So how is this possible? The answer lies in our old friend peroxynitrite. The reaction of nitric oxide with superoxide to form the much more powerful oxidant peroxynitrite is a key element in resolving the contrasting roles of nitric oxide in physiology and pathology. A number of pathological conditions are associated with the simultaneous generation of nitric oxide and superoxide. Nitric oxide sources are restricted to the activity of the various nitric oxide synthases, Whereas superoxide arises from multiple sources, including electron leak from the mitochondria, NADPH oxidase, xanthine oxidase, and the uncoupling of nitric oxide synthases. By the way, I think that part of the paper, the review needs to be updated. I'd like to add that cytochrome P450 can reduce nitrite to nitric oxide, and so can other enzymes in the body under hypoxic or acidic environment. So there are situations where nitric oxide can be formed outside of the nitric oxide synthesis. I think that's important to point out. So products like Berkeley Life Professional, where they're providing nitrate that eventually gets converted to nitrate can up your nitric oxide levels. Okay, the next part of the paper is a bit long, but it's really the heart of the presentation. Yeah, I meant that pun. So sit up, take a few deep breaths and get some oxygen into your brain. It's that important. In 1990, the first papers suggesting that peroxynitrite could be a biological oxidant were published. Before then, most scientists did not believe that the body could produce something as toxic as peroxynitrite. In fact, some of the original ideas of nitric oxide and peroxynitrite came from the research into air pollution. At the time, much of the literature suggested that nitric oxide was simply a scavenger of superoxide and thus acting as an antioxidant. However, Joseph Beckman and his group at the University of Alabama, Birmingham, showed peroxynitrite exists in vivo and produces far more hydroxyl radicals than the widely accepted Fenton reaction. In addition, peroxynitrite produces nitrogen dioxide, which can lead to novel oxidation products that were previously only suspected to occur after exposure to cigarette smoke or to air pollution. So essentially, if your body's producing peroxynitrate, it's as bad as if you were smoking or out in the smog of a big city. And that's crazy. It just mind blows my mind that peroxynitrate can generate the same toxins that are in cigarette smoke. You know, just let that sink in for a moment. Separately, neither superoxide nor nitric oxide is particularly toxic in vivo because they are efficient means to minimize their accumulation. Superoxide is rapidly removed by high concentrations of scavenging enzymes called superoxide dismutases and their distinct isoenzymes located in the mitochondria, the cytoplasm, and extracellular compartments. Nitric oxide is rapidly removed by its free diffusion through tissues and into red blood cells where it is rapidly converted to nitrate by reaction with oxyhemoglobin. This limits the biological half-life of nitric oxide in vivo to about a second, whereas concentrations of nitric oxide can persist in vitro for an hour. So that's the paper saying in a nice scientific way uh, all you in vitro studies that show nitric oxide existing for long periods of time are just plain wrong. When both superoxide and nitric oxide are synthesized within a few cell diameters of each other, they will combine spontaneously to form peroxynitrite by diffusion limited reaction. That means what that means chemically is every time nitric oxide and superoxide collide, they form peroxynitrite. The incredible speed of peroxynitrite formation is an important part of its effect and no enzyme is required to form it. That fact will be obvious to the biochemists listening to this because of the nature of diffuse limited reaction, actually the definition of diffusion limited reactions. An enzyme cannot possibly catalyze a reaction as fast as nitric oxide and superoxide react, react all by themselves. In fact, nitric oxide is the only known biological molecule that reacts faster with superoxide and is produced in high enough concentrations to outcompete endogenous levels of superoxide dismutase. So what that means under normal conditions, if it's a choice between nitric oxide and forming with superoxide and making peroxynitrite, or superoxide getting cleansed from the body by superoxide dismutase, the nitric oxide is gonna win out every single time and make peroxynitrite. That's huge. So if you have lots of nitric oxide being produced anywhere near the source of superoxide, and sometimes that's happening in the same cell, all the superoxide dismutase in the world's not gonna stop the formation of peroxynitrite. Consequently, the kinetics and the thermodynamics of the reaction of superoxide with nitric oxide make the formation of peroxynitrite inevitable in vivo. It's not a question of if you're making peroxynitrite, but how much. So let's look into that. This is what you would expect as the equation of nitric oxide plus superoxide to make peroxynitrite. So, as an example, 10 right-hand gloves plus 10 left-hand gloves equal 10 pairs of gloves, right? It should be that simple. However, right, we're dealing with biochemistry here. Nothing's ever simple. However, because all of the biological reactions that peroxinite triggers downstream, you get this. A tenfold increase in nitric oxide and superoxide gives a hundredfold increase increase in peroxynitrite so when the immune system is activated nitric oxide and superoxide levels can increase by a thousandfold. that gives rise to a million fold increase in peroxynitrite not a hundred fold not a thousand fold not a hundred thousand fold a million fold increase and that's just bigger than use it's a game-changing biological shift So is it any wonder why some of your patients are struggling? Is it any wonder they're inflamed? Is it any wonder they cannot handle anything, anything that might cause even the slightest bit of inflammation? I had a patient once who couldn't eat without having a massive inflammatory storm. So now I understand what she was going through a whole lot more. You know, we've talked about endothelial nitric oxide, but we really haven't gone over what the endothelium is and what it's doing. So here is a diagram of a blood vessel. In the middle, those little peach-colored things, those are red blood cells. And then you'll see a layer of the endothelium and then on either side, either above or below, those bigger cells, those are the smooth muscle cells. So the endothelium serves as a barrier and a sensing mechanism. And that's really enough to know for this, uh, this lecture, this video that we're putting together, there's so much more that the endothelium is doing, but that's its job. It's to create a barrier and to sense what's going on inside the blood vessel and to communicate that to the entire system we talked about what nitric oxide is doing but what we what's really important to understand is how far these chemicals can diffuse outside the source uh, cell where they're generated so what you see here is nitric oxide can diffuse really freely throughout cells and it, lets it, it bounces into something it's reacting with, mostly a heme. So if it goes into the bloodstream, it's going to react with the platelets there and react with hemoglobin and to form nitrate. Uh, and that gives its half-life of about one second. So it can easily diffuse through several cell diameters, no problem. All right, next, let's look at superoxide. And there you can see superoxide doesn't travel so much, and that's really due to the fact that there's so much superoxide dismutase around, right? There's superoxide dismutase inside the mitochondria, inside the cell, and even outside in the extracellular space. So there's lots of superoxide around to mop up superoxide. However, we just as we mentioned before, if nitric oxide gets there before the superoxide or they're there at the same time, the superoxide will react with the nitric oxide to form peroxynitrite, and that's what we'll look at next. Peroxynitrite, even though it gets formed so incredibly quickly by the chemical reaction, it can diffuse quite a bit, and that's because it reacts selectively. It isn't, you know, even though it's a a radical and a strong oxidant, it doesn't just react with everything around it. So it can bounce around from cell to cell for a while before it finds a site that it wants to react with. And last, I think it's really important to have a look at the other really well-known radical, the hydroxyl radical. And here you can see how tiny its diffusion radius is. And that's simply because it is so, so very reactive that it doesn't travel anywhere. The ability of the hydroxyl radical to travel is about the diameter of a small protein, and that's 10,000 times less than peroxynitrite travels so they're just radically different even though we call them free radicals and talk about oxidative stress in this kind of general blanket terms i think it's really really important to begin distinguishing the difference between these radicals and what they're doing and what their potential are they are not the same you can't not treat them the same they're radically different based on how quickly they're formed a and then how Quickly, or how far they can diffuse be and then see what they're reacting with. So a hydroxyl radical just reacts with everything and oxidizes anything in its path. It's so reactive, it cannot travel at all. So the contrast between peroxynitrate and hydroxyl radical is dramatic. The hydroxyl radical is formed by a rather slow chemical process via the reaction of ferrous iron with hydrogen peroxide, but reacts so quickly with everything around it that it can only diffuse about the diameter of a small protein. In contrast, peroxynitrate is formed very, very quickly each time superoxide and nitric oxide collide. However, it reacts more slowly and more selectively throughout the cell. That makes the biological and pathological implications of peroxynitrate far, far more interesting because it can have a more subtle and more specific action in and around the cell. So one of those reactions I've discovered recently, and it was interesting to hear uh, Dr. Joseph Mercola bring up the same fact here. We're kind of on the same page as far as nitric oxide goes. And that is when you combine peroxynitrite and carbon dioxide, and there's plenty of carbon dioxide in the cells, right? It's just part of the oxidative process within the mitochondria. You get a curious molecule called the carbonate Radical, and it's particularly damaging to DNA. So peroxynitrite forms another radical that goes out and clobbers DNA. Isn't that interesting? This 2001 study from the Journal of Biological Chemistry shows that the carbonate radical is particularly good at oxidizing guanine proteins in DNA. Man, peroxynitrite is the gift that keeps on giving. It's just crazy, isn't it? And have you noticed something here? All these radicals are so much different from each other and they behave in so much different ways. We need to stop thinking of them simply as oxidants or part of some vague term like oxidative stress. They each have unique personalities. A hydroxyl radical does not behave anything like superoxide. Superoxide behaves nothing like nitric oxide and nothing can keep superoxide and nitric oxide apart from each other. And peroxynitrate has its own peculiarities like its exponential multiplying effect and its ability to generate a whole host of other oxidants, including our new friend, the carbonate radical, which has its own idiosyncrasy of gobbling up guanine in DNA. So back to the 2007 paper from Physiological Reviews, they say once a flux of nitric oxide and superoxide is produced simultaneously in close proximity, the generation of peroxynitrite is considerably enhanced. Peroxynitrite dependent cytotoxicity is then mediated by a myriad of effects including lipid peroxidation, protein nitration and oxidation, DNA oxidative damage, and activation of matrix metalloproteinases and the inactivation of various enzymes. Mitochondrial enzymes are particularly vulnerable to attacks by peroxynitrite, and this leads to reduced ATP formation, mitochondrial swelling, and weakening of the outer mitochondrial membrane. So this allows for the efflux of several pro-apoptotic molecules, including cytochrome C and apoptosis-inducing factor. In addition to its damaging effects on mitochondria, peroxynitrate can afflict mild to severe oxidative injury to DNA, resulting in DNA strand breakage. That's bad news. This in turn activates the nuclear repair enzyme PARP Activated PARP consumes NAD. And, you know, I don't have time to go to NAD, but it's all over the internet and it's the kind of the, the supplement of choice these days uh, nicotinamide, riboside, and so forth and so on. But NAD is usually important. So, anyway, back to the paper. Mild damage of DNA activates the DNA repair machinery and normal cell functions. So if there's only a little bit of peroxynitrite, eh, the body can handle it. However, once more peroxynitrite is produced and moderate oxidative and nitrosative, let me say that again, oxidative and nitrosative stress induced DNA and damage occur, the cell may be retired, broken apart and recycled by the apoptosis process. And if even more peroxynitrate is produced and massive damage occurs, the orderly process of apoptosis fails to keep up and you get necrosis instead of apoptosis. That's bad news. In this last scenario, PARP is overactivated. That's the DNA repair enzyme, so it's overactivated aided massive amounts of nad are consumed and cellular atp production collapses and is released into the extracellular matrix so that's what that chart there is showing it's the whole peroxynitrite damage to the mitochondria and what can occur with that so once cell death by necrosis kicks in it can be very difficult to stop Septic shock is the classic example, but I think many of our sickest patients are flirting on the edge of an apoptosis slash necrosis crisis. So I'm going to go out on a limb here with this hypothesis of mind. I believe we have to go beyond the good and bad paradigm of the redox system. Simply antioxidants are good, free radicals are bad. Why does the body make peroxynitrite? It's a good question, right? Is it a mistake? I don't think so. So nitrate is biphasic. Physiological amounts mediate apoptosis. Apoptosis is an immensely, immensely important process. The orderly retirement of cells recycles proteins and lipids and prevents runaway inflammation. On the other hand, large amounts of peroxynitrate is part of the innate immune system and mediates cell death by necrosis, which targets both pathogens and host cells. So it can take four to seven days for the adaptive immune system to react to a novel pathogen. And if you didn't have a robust innate immune response, you would just die. So peroxynitrate is an important molecule. The problem is peroxynitrate production can spiral out of control, mostly because of the exhaustion of antioxidant enzymes. But genetics can also play a huge role in that as well. So once that starts, it can be super hard to stop. Then this next section is based on two papers, a 2019 article from Nitric Oxide. And this 2013 article from the American Journal of Heart and Circulatory Physiology. So we're going to talk about the nitric oxide synthases, the enzymes. And they all share these common traits. So this covers all three versions of the enzymes. We've all heard a ton about uncoupling. Uncoupling is a technical chemical term, but All you need to know is that uncoupling means the enzyme is producing superoxide, not nitric oxide. So the first way that this happens is L-arginine is not available. Now, there's some discussion about whether or not this can happen. And in fact, I'm here to tell you it can. So what happens is There can be plenty of arginine in the blood supply, so the tests come out normal. There can even be enough arginine within the cell, but it's being sucked away. The gradient isn't close enough to the nitric oxide synthase, and this heme, this red heme, uh, oxidized heme that does the work in the enzyme, isn't stable enough and it falls apart. So when the arginine isn't available right there, right on time, what happens is the oxygen and the heme domain create a superoxide radical instead. Now, what is going on there is in the literature referred to as the arginine paradox. However, I just like to call it the arginine steel. And the primary culprit in the arginine steel is arginase. Now, arginase is produced a lot when the immune system is tilted toward the Th2 or macrophage two immune response. So when the immune system gets polarized to that, that's essentially the healing phase. That's a little oversimplified, but basically the healing phase of the immune system. On a larger level, the liver urea pathway can consume a ton of arginine, and this can affect the nitric oxide synthase three, the endothelial NOS. It's not simply something that's going on with the inducible NOS and the immune cells. All right, so that's the first method of uncoupling I wanna talk about. Now there's a second uncoupling that happens, and this involves uh, the BH4 molecule. And you'll see there, there are two recycling circles, Uh, next to the BH4 to the right of it, and in between there's, excuse me, the BH3 and ascorbate. So as BH4 donates an electron to this process, it becomes a radical called BH3. And As long as it is reduced back to BH4, there's not a problem. Ascorbate, which is a bioactive form of vitamin C, enables this to happen. Now, this is the very, very, very important role of BH4 in nitric oxide production. So, as we talked about earlier, up to the top left in the reductase domain, the NADPH donates the electron. Now, this electron in terms of chemistry, biochemistry, moves down to the opposite side slowly. And if it doesn't happen fast enough, the heme, doesn't stay stable and spits out the superoxide. So BH4 is there to temporary lend temporarily lend an electron. So as long as the BH4 is there, the heme is stable enough long enough to oxidize the arginine to citrulline. And then what happens if there if the BH4 after it donates its electron isn't able to recycle and it gets stuck its BH3 then the arginine doesn't matter how much is there. The arginine can't get oxidized. It can't get transferred there to the site of uh, in the enzyme that makes this all happen fast enough, because the heme is so unstable in its ferrous state, in this oxidized state, that it spits out a superoxide. So just like with the other case with the arginine, this case though, it, the arginine's right there, but the heme is so unstable it can't reach out and grab the arginine. That's the BH4-NOS uncoupling. So to recap, we've got the arginine steel when there's no arginine available. And then we have BH4 deficiency. So sometimes there's just not enough BH4 being made by the body with certain deficiencies or pathway deficiencies there. In this case, the nitric oxide synthase homodimer isn't going to be formed or stay formed long enough to make enough nitric oxide. So in these cases, we can see a very low level production of nitric oxide. The other thing that happens is there's a lack of reduction capacity inside the cell. Essentially, the cell can't keep up with all the oxidative stress and the nitric oxide synthase starts to fall apart and produce superoxide instead, right? So that's the uncoupling and we know Now, because of what we've been looking at, that when you've got the superoxide being produced next to nitric oxide, imagine if one cycle the enzyme's producing superoxide and then kind of recovers a bit and then produces uh, nitric oxide. They're going to combine immediately, right, and form a a peroxynitrite. That's bad, bad news. All right. So we're entering the home stretch. You've done a great job so far. Hang in there. We're going to bring this all home. You know, when I first talked to Bob Miller and he invited me to present at his conference, he said, "Uh, can you do this in an hour? I said, ah, no problem. Then I started doing some more research. I called him back and said, Bob, I think I need another half hour. Let us look at this mouse study. It blew my mind. It was a 2009 Japanese study. It was published in the Circulation Journal and it's open access, so take your time. This is well worth reading. This is where I got the concept of team nitric oxide. This study shows that nitric oxide synthases work in tandem and will compensate for each other. All right, here is a graph showing basically how many of the mice died. So the the red step at the bottom is the is the worst case and the other cases are Uh, not quite as bad as you can see. So what they did was they're trying to find a model, a mouse model to mimic human heart disease, particularly heart attacks. So they started out by taking out the nitric oxide synthesis, genetically knocking out, uh, then they started with endothelium NOS. So they started knocking out one enzyme at a time, thinking, okay, which one of these is most important? So they started with ENOS. And when they knocked out one nitric oxide enzyme, eh, they weren't getting the model they were looking for. So they started deleting two enzymes at a time with the various combinations. And that was a little more what they were looking for, but it wasn't until they took out all three nitric oxide enzymes that the mice started having heart attacks in the same way that human beings do. What they learn from this is that the NOS enzymes work together as a team and compensate for each other. So this is huge, right? You can't pigeonhole one NOS enzyme as only having one effect. Don't make that mistake. Somehow there's crosstalk going on between the enzymes and they work together to maintain nitric oxide levels. So if you have a patient with heart disease and you're looking at genetic SNPs, you can't just assume because they don't have Enos SNPs, right, NOS-3 SNPs, that they're okay. You also have to look at the other NOS enzymes as well. So what you see here is cross-section of the mouse hearts. On the left is the wild type. You can see how nice and clear it is. And there's the cross-section of the coronary artery. It's beautifully open. On the right-hand side, what you see is a heart from a mouse that had all three nitric oxide synthases knocked out. That's the triply knocked out NOS mouse. And the blue in the top part in the heart, that's all necrotic tissue from the heart attack. And down below what you'll see, it's the same type of, coronary artery but you can see the blue is fibrosis so the body's trying to repair damage being done and then you can see all the narrowing going on there right that artery is really blocked up and that's because of tissue regrowth after all the damage being done all right so let's this is a graphical abstract of what the study found so basically a defective nitric oxide synthase system activates the renin-angiotensin system. And if you remember back to the beginning when we were talking about the BPA study, right? BPA also activated the renin-angiotensin system. So a lack of nitric oxide or a toxicity has the same effect. That, to me, is mind-blowing. So we know with this first box here, the vascular dysfunction, that that's going to happen without enough nitric oxide, right? That's a given. These other things, though, I found were super fascinating. And the next is when we don't have enough nitric oxide, there's not enough of a hormone called adiponectin. Adiponectin is produced by our fat cells. And there is a fat layer around the blood vessels probably as an energy source, but it also produces nitric oxide. There is endothelial nitric oxide in these fat cells as well. And obviously these fat cells are sending out hormones uh, and talking to the rest of the system here. So when there's not enough adiponectin, we know this is greatly involved with metabolic syndrome. So not only are you getting metabolic syndrome because of the activation of the renin-angiotensin system, but you have low adiponectin and that's contributing to it as well. So it's no wonder that your patients are obese, struggling with blood sugar, struggling with hypertension, all those metabolic syndrome uh, symptoms that we see day in and day out. The next thing that they saw with the triple knockout mice is there's higher levels of LDL, right? that comes as no surprise but also with this chart you get the idea that simply a strategy of lowering ldl is not a good idea so if you're stuck still stuck on the cholesterol paradigm of heart disease uh, it's time to move away from that and last this was super crazy fascinating without nitric oxide controlling and downregulating mast cells the mast cells began to invade the heart and they led to coronary spasms. And that was one of the triggers for the spontaneous myocardial infarction. So it's just crazy how much nitric oxide plays into all these systems, right? When you take away nitric oxide, it's like taking away gears on a mountain bike and eventually the body gets to a condition where it just can't compensate. All right, so let's go a little bit deeper into the pathways that get dysregulated with nitric oxide synthase dysfunction. So we're going to put this all together. Okay, here we go. So this time I'm only going out a little bit on a limb. All this information has come from the studies we've looked at, but I put it together in a slightly different way and included a couple different things. And I think it's going to really make this bring this all together for you and help you make sense of it. We're gonna build a chart. So first thing, and this has got zero, uh, what do I wanna say, controversy to it. At the bottom, we've got NOS3, endothelium NOS makes nitric oxide, right? No, that's, right, we don't have to argue about that at all. And above it, we know that nitric oxide downregulates mast cells, and it downregulates NOx1 and NOx2 if not the other noxes as well. And, and the NOX enzyme is the NADPH oxidase. And NADPH oxidase, its only job is to make superoxide and is triggered as an immune response, okay? So that's our starting foundation here. Now, we learned from our first study that BPA increases angiotensin two, and not mentioned in that study, but from other studies, angiotensin two boosts the NOX enzyme. So that creates more superoxide. So we've got a major source of superoxide here. We also know that nitric oxide is being made. So when you put superoxide and nitric oxide together, you get peroxynitrite, the dreaded oh no chemical. Its chemical uh, shorthand is oh no. And that peroxynitrite causes, it down-regulates BH4, right? It causes problems with BH4. And BH4 can get oxidized to BH2 or BH3. I put them both in there because if the BH4 is oxidized all the way down, one more step after the BH3 it becomes BH2 and has to go somewhere else to get uh, refurbished, so to speak, to, to be reduced back to BH4. And this all leads to the NOS uncoupling. Remember that study and those charts that I showed you about NOS uncoupling. So once the uncoupling is happening, that leads to more superoxide and a reduction in nitric oxide so once the nitric oxide synthases are uncoupled what you're going to see is more superoxide and less nitric oxide bad news for your coronary system now if there's not enough nitric oxide what happens eventually is that the mass cells and the Nox enzymes are no longer regulated. Particularly when the Nox enzymes get going like crazy, they start something called the NADPH deal. This is Bob Miller's term, and we need NADPH for all kinds of reactions in the body. NADPH Uh, donates an electron in so many different pathways, it's critically important. So if it's getting burned up by the NADPH oxidase, the NOx enzymes, then you don't have enough NADPH to go around. In fact, what Bob Miller talks about is that NADPH, one of the emergency pathways for making NADPH is the body will take tryptophan to create NADPH, and when that happens, then you start getting wired and tired, right? Okay, and when mast cells aren't regulated, you get excess histamine dump, you get mast cell activation, and interestingly enough, histamine upregulates NOS3, So here you have uncoupling happening of the NOS. You have an increase in the NOS, right? And we showed here that the BPA increases NOS 8.7%. Now you've got... No, I'm sorry, not 8.7%, 8.7 folds. You've got histamine increasing loss. So some of that is producing some nitric oxide, but it's in, uncoupled as well, right? So it's also producing lots of superoxide. So this is just a peroxynitrate machine going on there. And we know that the peroxynitrate also, when it meets up with the carbon dioxide, it makes a carboxyl radical. That leads to DNA damage, and once the DNA damage happens, we get the PARP activation, more NAD depletion. So we got the NAD steel going on, the NAD depletion, which is also a form of the NAD steel. This leads to necrosis. And necrosis, those of you who know, is a massive, massive inflammatory trigger. So when the body senses proteins that shouldn't be in the extracellular space, it gets very excited and pays attention and sends the innate immune system to go take care of business. And that causes a massive inflammatory cascade. And again, septic shock is the classic example of that, where it spins out of control. But in this case, what we're talking about is damage done to the heart disease you can see here that between the histamine and the inflammation and damage done that there are huge problems so my bet is that you have many patients coming into your office where their hearts and coronary arteries look something like our poor mice here let's review this toxicity NOS coupling, peroxynitrite, DNA damage, mass cell dysfunction, the NAD, NADPH steel, and cardiovascular disease. That's essentially what I've shown you, right? That's, if we could sum up this video in one slide, that would be it. But it was important to take you on the journey to get here. They're all related. Can you see that now? So the toxicity causes NOS uncoupling, NOS uncoupling causes peroxynitrite that causes DNA damage. The peroxynitrite also lends itself to mass cell dysfunction, uh, the lack of nitric oxide included in that. Uh, It also leads to the NADPH steel because the NOx enzyme's going nuts and that's going to reduce the efficiency of the nitric oxide synthesis as well because there's not NADPH to donate the electron. And all this bundled up is creating cardiovascular disease in your patients. Now, the other thing is I'd like to say that NOS uncoupling is such a misunderstood term and it doesn't really have the emotional impact. So I would like to call this whole thing the nitric oxide steal. So not only is peroxynitrite being formed, but it's stealing nitric oxide. So you've got this explosion of inflammatory process. You don't have enough nitric oxide. Everything just goes haywire.
0: I thought this was really cool. Why, thank you <laughs> you're it's
1: very nice you're, to have a fan club in the family
0: you're very welcome father a family club indeed um what really blew my mind was that whole nitric oxide and peroxynitrate coupling that uncoupling it, uncoupling and how much the inflammation increased like you were saying it was like in a million fold increase' like
1: well the, the, let, let's back up there What's important to know is once peroxynitrite starts getting formed in the body, and basically any time your immune system kicks in, that's gonna start, or when the cells are under oxidative stress, mm-hmm. then, or nitrosative stress, it's any, any, let's just say any type of stress. When the cells are under stress, peroxynitrite's starting to get formed. And because the way peroxynitrite interacts with other compounds in the cell, in and around the cell, what happens is instead of just increasing what you would think like on a linear it it gets algorithmic the inflammation just really gets ramped up and if the body does not have the resources to calm that back down again that's when you you're stuck in bed and every joint hurts and it just won't stop you can't get it to stop right and that's why that's why they do prescribe Uh, uh, hormones steroids steroids right thank you prednisone things like that because prednisone shuts all those pathways off as but the problem is if you've got a chronic infection or any type of infection it also shuts down your immune system because this is a function of your immune system that said if things are really stuck a short dose of prednisone might be advantageous I'm not you know, there are also herbal ways to do that. You know, I'd, I start with the herbal pathways first and all the natural stuff first. But sometimes things are so bad, then you just need to back it up with some sort of antibiotic or herbal antibiotic, the prednisone we're talking about. But that's, that's the important part to know is once this inflammatory cascade gets cranked up before your body's ability to cool it off. You know, and this is Chinese medicine. There's too much heat. It just goes off the rails. And it's really, really, really difficult to shut down. Did I say really enough? Really difficult to shut down. So that's the answer to your question.
0: it is the answer to my question.
1: And I think it's so much of the suffering that's going on. It's like the damage is done. So you you can have the same symptoms that you had because of this inflammation when you were infected, even after the infection's gone because the inflammatory cascade has not been shut down yet. And damage... Right. So, so a dying cell that's not retired properly that goes into necrosis instead of apoptosis is going to start off as much inflammatory signaling as an infection will. So you can, you can get this cycle of damage and inflammation that just won't let up whether or not the bugs still present, whether it's hiding behind a biofilm or gone inactive. And that's why there's so much suffering out there right? So you can keep throwing antibiotics at it and that's not going to help. You need to cool these systems down. You need to get your nitric oxide back online and back on track.
0: Okay. I'm going to give a kindergartner summary of that. Okay. Okay. If you don't get your inflammation in your body under control, you're going to keep suffering. I think that's a good way to summarize. it. Yes.
1: And right? I think that's a little more well said. And actually it's, <laughs> Much more difficult to synthesize that down to one sentence. So I'm going to say that's not kindergarten level. That's like <laughs> PhD level. Simple, the simpler, the better. All right. If you like what we're doing here at Lime Ninja Radio, hit the subscribe button at the bottom of the episode. And even more importantly, scroll all the way down to the bottom and leave us a review. If you're pressed for time, just hit the five stars. And if you have a minute or two, go ahead, especially if you're still listening, you're either really, really interested in nitric oxide or really, really like us, leave us a short review, a couple sentences about what you find useful. It helps us get ranked in iTunes. And the more ranking we have, the more people find us, the more people we can help, just like you. And last, as you long-time Lime Ninjas know, this podcast would not be complete unless we left you with Aurora's Lime Ninja fact of the day.
0: Did you know... Bigfoot once claimed he saw a ninja.